You're listening to Just Ask the Question, Adventures in Reporting with your host, Brian Karam. Hi, and welcome back to Just Ask the Question. I am your host, Brian Karam, and joining me for our weekly review called Just Ask the Press is former federal prosecutor Michael Zeldin and editor-at-large from CQ Roll Call, John Bennett. This week, we're going to unravel a lot that's happened in the news. It's been a busy news week, as always. Uh, last night, as we record this, Donald Trump romped in South Carolina. The question is, is uh, well, is former South Carolina uh, Governor Nikki Haley done? And is Donald Trump the heir apparent in the GOP? There's also the latest Trump foibles in court from the Supreme Court down to Georgia that we have to take a look at. Meanwhile, in the House of Representatives, they're out for this week, but Will Maga Mike try to avert a shutdown? The Speaker of the House has that facing him when they come back. Donald Trump, in a speech that he made this past week, uh, made several racial jokes. Uh, we'll talk about that. Uh, at the mean, And in the same time, Admiral Brad Cooper, no, not to be confused with a guy who was in a hangover, but he's uh, uh, <clears throat> fresh off the movie set and is talking about the size of the naval battles in the Middle East after we've hit the Houthis once again. And finally, we'll take a look at the Ukraine funding and the comments that uh, the president of the United States is Genocide Joe. A lot to unpack. So stick around. We'll be right back. In this modern age of misinformation and deceit, Just Ask the Questions newsletter cuts through the BS and gets to the truth. With Brian's in-depth articles, columns, and exclusive content not released anywhere else. Get the scoop and stay in the know. Sign up for the Just Ask the Question newsletter now at substack.com slash J-A-T-Q podcast. Hi, we are back. It is Just Ask the Question. I am your host, Brian Karam, with our weekly review of the news, Just Ask the Press. And we're going to start out with the obvious Donald Trump romped over Nikki Haley. I mean, she only got 39% of the vote in the South Carolina primary. He picks up 44 delegates for the Republican National Convention in Milwaukee this fall. And while everyone is saying, well, at least Donald Trump is saying, this is the end of Nikki Haley. Nikki Haley is on her way to Michigan and vows to continue the fight. And the question has to be, why? Is is Nikki Haley still in a race? Does she have a shot? And for that, we'll start with uh, you, John. You think there's any reason she should still be in the race? I don't think she has a shot. The, she's <laughs> clearly playing. She's playing a long game here. Excuse me. And, you know, someone someone will have to be the nominee in 2028. Um, they're not. Despite what it may feel like, sometimes they're not going to shut down the Republican Party just because Donald Trump, you know, can't run again or, um, you know, he'll be in his early mid 80s by then if he's uh, still with us. So somebody's got to take the mantle down the road and by staying in you know depending on which angle you look at it from or or who you're speaking to she's she's either possibly setting herself self up to be the presumptive nominee or she's embarrassing herself and i think at various days that that can be different um you know she is she is trying to appeal uh to a broader uh, a, a broader piece of the electorate than just, you know, his MAGA base. 
Uh, but right now, that's that's more where the party is. So um, I do struggle to see um, where she fits in the party long term. I wrote a story recently for for Roll Call, and I talked to a number of Republican lawmakers who said just that, that they don't right now see a clear path back in for her. They 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 think that Florida Governor Ron DeSantis um, played this uh, wiser by getting out when he did before the New Hampshire primary and uh, immediately endorsed Trump. Now, since, you know, there is some tension there still with Trump, uh, but those lawmakers who have been at this longer than me, um, you know, they said that was the smart play and, and DeSantis might have one more one more run in him and and that'll probably be in a post Donald Trump uh, era. So, you know, I don't think she has a shot, um, but she's going to stay in and, you know, that's going to cause Trump to, to you know, use some resources that, you know, he might he would probably rather hang on to those resources for the general election. Uh, so she's going to make him spend some money. Uh, but she's you know, he's got so many delegates now. I don't think she could catch up. What about you, Michael? You think it's a uh, it it's a fait accompli? Well, it might be unless he's indicted and convicted. And if I were Haley, and I could still raise money, and she, I think, outraised him in this last um, cycle, um, or or raised close to him in this last cycle, I for sure would stick around. I mean, there are a couple of things that are worth noting. One is Trump is still underperforming in in suburbs and underperforming substantially among people who believe that Joe Biden actually won the election. Um, I still think that abortion is a, is is a big issue with this in, in vitro um, fertilization um, ruling out of Alabama that um, seems to be a theological uh, decision rather than a legal uh, decision. So I think there's a not viewable path through the Republican primary system at the moment. But if Trump is indicted and convicted and his numbers start plunging, I don't know how the rules of the Demo- of how the Republican convention rules work, whether people are bound on the first ballot to, to, to vote for him and therefore he he wins, or if there is um, an indictment and a conviction and um, people are, um, and he's hemorrhaging uh, support, whether the Republicans viewing him as a non-starter for the general election uh, general election victory have a mechanism by which they can um, upend the the primary system and put in somebody else. So, you know, again, if I were her and I I was watching what he was saying and trying to take the pulse of independent voters and non big lie um, be- believers and you know pro. Um, semi-pro-choice uh, voters, I think I'd stick around. I, I think you'd stick around because I, I'm not convinced, still I'm convinced that Donald Trump's going to be on the ballot in November for a variety of reasons. If she's the only one that's still in the race, 
I, I mean, I get the long uh, the game that you're talking about, John, but the intermediate game, I mean, she's off the tee. She's got to get on the green. And I, you know, to, to use our, so her, right now, I think she's pulling out a, you know, like a seven iron <laughs> and trying to get on the green after a nice stroke to get off the, the tee. I, I don't know that Donald Trump sticks. I don't know. And I think that's the game she's playing right now. 2028 is a real long game. But 2024, I think, is still up for grabs, <clears throat> despite what Donald Trump would have you believe, for the reasons that you said, too, Michael. I, I see her gar you know, garnering more cash. There is a substantial lead in delegates, but if she comes up with enough delegates that um, something happens to Trump and she can convince even a few of the delegates, in other words, to put her over the, you know, in, in Milwaukee to put her over the top, then... Uh, it, it begins to look like there's a, a serious, that's the serious game for this election cycle. But uh, that, that I, you know, all of that remains to be seen as to what happens to Donald Trump, which, of course, brings me to all the, the trials and foibles that Donald Trump is facing right now. And uh, while, I mean, you can update us, Michael, on, on that. I mean, I guess we could start with the Supreme Court. We were expecting a decision this week. We didn't get one. In Florida, there's all talks that Donald Trump filed to have those uh, cases dismissed because of his expansive uh, immunity, and he believes that the special prosecutor there was chosen inaccurately or illegally. And then in Georgia, there's still the pushback against uh, Fonnie Willis over her affair with uh, the special prosecutor. So, Michael, I'll let you unpack all of that. Okay, so the Supreme Court has pending before it a decision whether to take up Trump's case on the merits claiming immunity. They have not issued an opinion of, in respect of whether they'll take the merits of that case. Do we expect that? The same? Say it again. Do we expect that soon? Do you think it'll be? I think people are hoping it'll come soon, but you know there's it's within their discretion and so there's no knowing whether they'll do it it would seem to me if you're um the supreme court you'd want to get this thing resolved quickly um but it's not been very long since these motions were filed and these are complicated decisions to make and so you know there was a lot of hand-wringing when we're waiting for the three-judge panel on the Court of Appeals to issue their ruling with legal analysts all over the place saying, oh, this is terrible. And Judge Henderson, the Republican, is slow walking this. For you know, it turned out to be all fantasy. And um, they issued a, a three-judge unanimous decision that was incredibly powerful against Trump's immunity claim. So we'll see what the Supreme Court does. All we can do is is wait and see. I don't think you can really read uh, uh, anything into the fact that it's been a week. Um, right. But the other thing besides the merits of does he have immunity or does he not have immunity is the question of uh, his request to stay the enforcement of the um, decision so that the trial judge can commence the trial. So there are two things, the merits of the case and the question of the stay. So for example, they could lift the stay meaning the case could start going toward trial while still ruling on the merits 
of, of the case. Those things don't have to be tied together. It would be better if they lifted the stay and de declined to hear the appeal, and then you'd have a clean shot toward a jury verdict and a determination whether Trump uh, violated the law or didn't violate the law. But that's where we are, right? We have to just wait and see on, as those two things unfold. In Mar-a-Lago, um, Trump filed a series of uh, motions on um, Thursday night, I think, was his, his deadline. And he essentially is saying that, one, the familiar argument that he's immune from criminal prosecution, that which no court has um, found uh, him uh, to be correct about. And then second, he's reducing the Presidential Records Act, lets him review his documents um, in any way he wants, and that he has um, uh, the sole authority to do that, and the court has no authority to review unreviewable discretion, they call it, over the classified uh, records under the Presidential Record Act, that he could do whatever the hell he wants. Of course, it doesn't answer the question, of, even if you were right, that he could designate whatever he he wants. He still is accused of obstructing justice, and, and um, that is not really addressed in his um, in, in his motions. So I, I don't see much happening here. If, if you had a judge that... Um, can, can, there's always the speculation that the reason why the Mar-a-Lago case is going the way it's going is because uh, the judge there loves Donnie and is going to drag it out forever. Do you see that in the actions that are taking place? I, I see in the actions that are taking place an inexperienced judge who I think is over her um, experience in these types of, of matters. For example, there's an, a motion pending before her not to release the names of, of, of witnesses because Jack Smith has argued that they face um, legal peril, uh, or not legal peril, they, they, Discrimination. they place uh, physical peril um, if they're released, and, and she's not sure. Because she, she's thinking in the ordinary case, uh, you get the names of, of, of prospective witnesses. But this is not the ordinary case. And she hasn't had enough extraordinary or even ordinary cases, I think, to fully understand the implications of what um, she's doing. So, you know, I know a lot of people think that she's in his pocket and she's what she's doing is is trying to cover for him. And, you know, who knows? They may be right. But my view is, We've got an um, in, inexperienced uh, a jurist who is making lots of legal mistakes. And then in the Georgia case with uh, Fannie Willis and the cell phones and all that garbage, is that even it, it does it have anything to do with Donald? And will it have any influence on the case? Look, I think that what's going on here principally is that they are trying to. Uh, if you will, soften the jury pool for um, to to think that there's some sort of corruption here in this case, and so that when they present their evidence, the prospective jurors in Fulton County will be suspicious of what she's presenting. They also, I think, would like to get her dismissed. Him is is almost irrelevant 
he's just a a line prosecutor, if you will. And if they get rid of him, then many people say he may be the weakest of the trial lawyers on her team. Wow. Um, if they get rid if they get rid of him, that's there's <laughs> no harm and maybe some benefit uh to the case. If they get rid of her, there's an open question of whether that gets rid of the entire district attorney's office and then this nine person panel that appoints uh successors in cases uh where there's a disqualification takes over, which could be, you know, forever before they make a new appointment. They've had one case pending for for eight months, I think. Right. Uh, for them to make an appointment. So, you know, it's about delay. It's about softening the the perception of her case in pers- with prospective jurors. As I say, Nathan Wade, if he's off the case, maybe a um a net plus for the prosecution team. But it it's not none of this, I think, goes to the underlying merits of the prosecution, meaning even if the judge says, you know what, uh, D.A. Willis, and you know what, Attorney Wade, I think in the best interest of the case, I'm going to ask you to step aside. None of that gets to, and therefore, I'm going to dismiss the charges against you. They never get to that, and therefore, I'm going to dismiss the charges against you. So it's not about, in my mind, a legitimate shot of getting the indictments dismissed. It's just these uh, periphery issues in, that interminable um, that, delays <laughs> and 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 delay yeah yeah although you know for them to really undo what willis has done they'd have to delay it past her i guess re-election hope that she's not re-elected that her successor takes a dimmer view of this case and makes it go away so I think that um, there's a lot of ifs in that sense. <laughs> well, or as Dandy Don used to say, if if and buts were candy and nuts, we'd all have a hell of a Christmas. Uh, John, speaking of a hell of a Christmas, and uh, Donald Trump would love to have if and buts before we and candy and nuts before we uh, take our break. How does this affect? How do you think all of this plays politically, especially on the Hill? He's not going to. To him, this is all grist for the mill is it not just fodder yeah i mean he uses this every day in his rallies on truth social on when he does uh you know television interviews or radio interviews he uses this to uh you know this this weird to me at least a weird uh line that uh they're they yeah i'm i'm being prosecuted because they really want to prosecute you (laughs) i'm not sure Someone's grandmother didn't try to overturn an election. You know, uh, Sally in Iowa isn't on tape asking the Georgia Secretary of State to find 11,800 and, and some odd votes. Um, yeah, he, he is unlike anyone that I can remember ever knowing, observing, covering in that he can turn what for you or me or Michael would be a big negative into somehow helping him if not i'm not maybe not you know, it doesn't put him over the top he's not up 12 points on no, it Joe just Biden. keeps his it keeps his uh his minions in line does it, it i mean his it, minions in line it keeps you know he's living off those small donations um from his supporters it keeps that cash coming in you know 25 bucks 25 bucks 25 bucks 400 dollars for tennis shoes 
Yeah, it right. It starts to add up. I mean, just ask Fonnie Willis. She keeps the cash in her house, and you know, she goes to Publix and gets twenty extra bucks, and then throws it in the lockbox. Kind of what goes on with Trump with these small donations, and <laughs> and he needs it because you know he he it 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 helps him because he keeps raising money, and he can use that money to, among other things, pay his legal bills. So, um. <laughs> And it does it it you know you would think it would weaken somebody within within that person's political party, but it just doesn't weaken this guy. It actually somehow helps him, uh, and that grip is is tighter than ever. By the way, yeah, yeah, we're going to talk a little bit about that and and how that affects people in Congress and the budget. So stick around. We'll be right back. Thanks. Hey, Just Ask the Question podcast listeners. If you've got a second, head on over to Twitter and follow our official page, JATQ Podcast. That's JATQ Podcast. In this modern age of misinformation and deceit, Just Ask the Question's newsletter cuts through the BS and gets to the truth. With Brian's in depth articles, columns, and exclusive content not found anywhere else. Get the scoop and stay in the know. Sign up for the Just Ask the Question newsletter now at Substack.com slash JATQ podcast. Hi, we're back. It's Just Ask the Press. I am your host, Brian Caramar, weekly review of the news. And as we left, we were talking about the latest Trump foibles and how it uh, plays politically. And I guess the question coming back uh, before we get to the fun topic is, uh, look, uh, unpack this for me, John. Uh, the, The House is left and we still face a government shutdown. That's still looming and it since they look mike johnson a whole uh, republican caucus is run by donald trump how does this and trump's foibles affect the house coming back are we going to see uh, a shutdown is is he going to avert a shutdown what's the latest there well the <laughs> we suspect that by the end of the week um one chamber or the other will um they really don't have any choice but to pursue another you know short term kind of bridge funding bill stop get bill keep the keep the lights on for i don't know two or three weeks while they keep talking about bigger full year spending bills oh by the way it already is fiscal 2024 the government is being funded under um a stop gap spending bill that runs out friday night and um, this would be not for all 12 federal agencies. This is just a handful uh, on Friday. And then another set of federal agencies funding would expire the following Friday on March 8th. So what they're what it looks like they're going to end up doing later this week is one bill for both tranches and kick this down the road two or three weeks. They are trying to do something and I don't want to bore our listeners, but it's called pre-conferencing so the house and senate appropriators those are the folks who dole out uh all your hard-earned taxpayer money they are trying to work out differences in 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 the the senate democratic run senate bills and the republican run house appropriations bills and you know that a lot of staff talks uh member talks 
and they have made some progress. Our reporting uh, from uh, CQN Roll Call is uh, that there, there has been some progress and there is agreement on a number of those bills. They're not ready for the floor, though. So that's why it looks like they're going to have to kick this down the road. But, oh, by the way, Donald Trump, even though Donald Trump and Brian, we were there, Donald Trump came to eight government shutdowns because the one that occurred on his watch, well, voters blamed him. Yeah. <laughs> it was just that simple. They blamed him by big numbers. And he reads polls, and he didn't like that. That, that they blamed him uh, 2018, 2019 over the, hol- the holiday shutdown back then. Um, but he's no longer the president. So Donald Trump has <laughs> flirted with the idea, um, implied in public comments that eh, maybe it wouldn't be such a bad thing <laughs> if the government shut down. So this is TBD. You know, Trump, uh, he's been focused on South Carolina and 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 I guess Michigan's up next. So he's focused on that. He's focused on his legal troubles. But I know from my reporting recently um, just how often he's calling Republican senators and Republican House members. He's constantly on the phone with these folks. And as as the converse, as those conversations that we're not privy to, as those conversations continue, um, this is going to be on their minds and he's going to you know, it's going to be front of his mind. Uh, by I would say midweek when the house is supposed to be back on Wednesday so and he's going to be weighing in and and it can just depend on his mood it'll depend on if he thinks it would hurt Joe Biden if the government shut down traditionally that's not been the case traditionally voters blame Republicans when a partial shutdown or a full shutdown happens so there are plenty of reasons for Mike Johnson to you know work with Schumer and, and Mitch McConnell and Nakeem Jeffries and and keep this thing open but if that if that really MAGA part of his conference makes enough noise and and those folks, those Freedom Caucus types, they don't care if the government shuts down and they think it might be a good thing if it's shut down. So we're not quite there yet. Uh, Johnson. Johnson doesn't well, wait a minute. Like let CRs. me let me ask. Let me ask this question. I know he doesn't like. But does this ever translate into them getting rid of Mike Johnson because there's talk of that already. And there yeah. are some Democrats who are trying to put it together, a, a process whereby he wouldn't be, because it still only takes one guy to walk up and go out and then they have to have a vote. So at the end of the line, let's take let's short circuit this and look at the end, at the end game is Mike Johnson going to stick around as the speaker of the house. Short answer. Yes. They are frustrated with him. Various parts of of his own conference are frustrated with him for different reasons, mind you. But yeah. the the consensus is that the consensus is they don't want to go through that again because you know it takes a couple of weeks. Uh, we saw you know the voting in conference and and it failed over and over. And you know it was Jim Jordan, then it was James Comer, and then it was this guy and that guy. They don't want to go through that again because it is, as the kids say, a bad look. And they know that. They've realized that. They yeah. that much that much has sunk has sunk in has sunk in. Um, you can punch in the face rather, once, maybe ignore it. Skulls. Yeah. They they don't want to go through that again. They know that it's damaged. That is politically damaging. And it makes them it makes them look incompetent. They'll Plus. tell you that. They'll tell you that when you when you talk to them on the hill. And they said that back then when 
the process oh, that yeah. led to Well, I've Johnson. heard him say, you know, I, I I never thought we'd look back at the uh McCarthy, <laughs> the Mike, you know, and 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 pine for the days when he was here, but they are. And yeah, so- a, a funny effect of Johnson's speakership is, you know, we hear a lot about um as as the Senate Republican conference becomes a little more MAGA every day that the the Senate is becoming like the House. But if you actually look at it tactically and and how the floor works in both chambers, Johnson has to pass things by suspending the rules. But that means it has to pass on the floor with two-thirds. And that's like the Senate where you need 60 votes to pass legislation. So the House, in a weird way, is becoming more Senate-like because you need two-thirds to pass bills when – if you if you follow the rules, because he can't pass rules, his own conservatives shoot down the rules for bills that they agree with. <laughs> Wrap your head around that. Um, so now he has to use Democratic votes to pass bills. Uh, we'll probably see this with the CR. He'll probably he'll have to do it under suspension because with a, a two or three seat majority and those conservatives won't deep cuts. They don't want to continue spending those. This the, It's funded at fiscal 23 levels. Those were worked out by Democrats. So the conservatives would sink the rule for the stopgap. So he's going to, ironically, after all this, he's going to keep the government open with Democratic votes. So let, let's let take it out of the political realm and even out of the legal realm and take it to Michael's realm. <laughs> when you look at it from the outside, what does it look like? What do you think it looks like, our, our, our wonderful way of passing laws and keeping our government open? Do you think it, it appeals to the average voter at all? I don't think the average voter has a clue about <laughs> what's going on. I remember in college, we I think we all read this book, How a Bill Becomes a Law. I think it was Hofstetter yeah. or some, some name like that. And um, that has gone out the window because bills don't become laws. And what you see is just maneuverings uh, most of which is, I think, calculated to protect the positions of power that people hold or, or want to hold. And the notion of Congress acting in the national interest is invisible. There are, you know, there are important bills that have been languishing. You know, whichever side of the issue you 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 fall on i mean there are there are bills that are just languishing they can't get to the floor i mean i think that this whole notion that things don't have to come up for a vote you know you go back to the appointment of merrick garland to be on the supreme court and um the senate wouldn't even put the vote um to the to the senators they just keep right. it you know sort of locked up in a in a closet um for their own you know reasons and you see the same thing here with the Ukraine vote, aid to Israel vote. If these things went to the floor and people voted on it, then I think the population would have a view of where people stand and what you know the perception of the collective Congress is about what's in our national interest. But it doesn't ever get there. But I think that has to make people um, cynical at, at, at best and um, disinterested, apathetic, or um, something worse um, at, at, at worst. And so I think it's a pox on everyone's house that 
this level of dysfunction um, is as high as it is, and um, there's no real solution in sight. I was hoping that after um, the special election in New York, where um, Santos's district returned to uh, Democrat um, control, that some of the Republicans in New York who are going to have to run for re-election uh, would, would say, you know what, it's in my best interest politically to work with the Democrats. Um, but they haven't done that. And you see now, um, guys, our friend from CNN, John Avalon, yeah. um, announced he's running for Congress in the first district, Lee Zeldin's old district, um, the the tip of, of Long Island. He's got a residence, I guess, in Sag Harbor, and um, he's announced he's running as a Democrat um, for that seat. And you'd think that these other Republicans in similar seats would say, you know what, I am better off cooperating with Democrats and being bipartisan than sticking in a you know monolith of the Republican Party. But so far, uh, we haven't seen that. I, I I often wonder what it, I, I look and John, you're there in Congress far more than I am. But when I talk to them in scrums and, and to Michael's point, you, you you reach out and you go, isn't it in your best interest to try and find common ground? And there is no to say that is to like say, would you like to have sepsis or maybe you'd like to have herpes? <laughs> they look at it as that. if it's a poison. The, the idea of cooperation, the art of half a loaf, which was what I was always taught that, you know, politics was. You may not get everything you want today, but you find consensus in something and we all row together ahead. That's that's lost. I, I yeah, can't that, find that anywhere. That's, I mean, you found it in the Senate with James Langford and, and Chris Murphy, uh, one very conservative and one uh, pretty liberal. I guess progressive is the term we use these days. Um, they negotiated. The border package that was that was added onto the Senate, uh, the Senate's uh, national security uh, emergency funding bill. So you do find it still in the Senate. It does exist over there. Remember, that's where the the gun violence bill originated. So the senators, they can still get there. The problem is, as we see with that national security aid bill, it it essentially died as they walked it over to the House um, because there isn't like you said, um, that finding common ground. And there's a lot of my way or the highway now. Yeah, that's all. You know, that's see. that that's a good way to raise money, but it's not a great way to to run a railroad or in this case, a government. And I and I am there in Congress more, which is why I'd like to plead guilty. Something uh, Michael said, I would like to I'm going to start describing myself as cynical at best. <laughs> Well, and, and here's something that'll even make you more cynical at at best. Uh, this week, and I can't even bring up the issue without laughing, and I shouldn't, but I guess I have to. Donald Trump is out on the stump selling his tennis shoes and uh, showing up at a, a at a, a conservative uh, uh, agenda meeting, speaking. Says a Fox News host said that Donald Trump is going to get the support of black voters because he's selling sneakers. Donald Trump thinks that uh, his his uh, indictments give him street cred. And then he came out and said, uh, you know, when the lights were too bright, 
And, uh, well, I can see the black people, but I can't see the white people. I'm making progress, aren't I? Now, I, I told you before we started, to me, it sounded like a Saturday Night Live skit. I mean, <clears throat> Chevy Chase in 1976 uh, imitating George Wallace or, you know, writing a bit about George Wallace said, you know, he spoke before the Athens Chamber of Commerce and said, I don't judge a man by the color of his skin. I judge him by how well I can see him in the dark when he smiles. And that was almost exactly what I heard out of Donald Trump. Is is any of that? Does, does any of that play with voters anywhere? And how does it? And then I'll start with you, Michael. Well, I hope it plays with voters um, <laughs> to see the you know the sort of the racist um, aspects of, of of Donald Trump and his supporters. This notion that he has street credibility because he's created a sneaker line and he has a mugshot. How offensive is that? And how offensive is what you just quoted that aren't I making progress now with the lights dim, I can see black people. I mean, how, how is that, how is that tolerable? And so I hope it oh, is, God. I hope it is effective. I hope the notion that this guy is um, ready to be president of the United States isn't, you know, completely undermined by this, um, it does does take hold, especially when you read polls that say, well, he's making, you know, he's chipping away at the Demo- black Democrat and Hispanic um, Democrat uh, support. And, you know, you'd think if you were watching him and you were a black or Hispanic Democrat who may be conservative on social issues or otherwise, and you look at this and you think, are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? This is this is who is running for president of the United States, uh, a person whose part, uh, party platform on day one is to essentially create concentration camps for illegal immigrants before he deports them wholesale, having rounded them up with um, National Guardsmen or Army people from from red states. How is it possible that that anyone could, except if you're an evangelical Christian who believes that he's <laughs> coming, how, how is this not impactful on, on your analysis of his suitability for president? I just, it's one of those things that you read and you shake your head and you think this has to be a Saturday Night Live skit <laughs> because it's, it it can't be America. <laughs> well, you know, but, we often said in the White House that, he missed his calling. He'd be a failed stand-up comic. But, John, do you think it's just a bad joke? or does he, I mean, come on. We covered Donnie. We know, we know what this is. You, you can say it. Listen. I just, you know, hearing Michael say it, it only gets worse the more times that I listen to the clip or, or someone describes it. Um, You know, I grew up like you, Brian. I grew up in the South, so... I've heard all of this before. I recognize this. I John Birch Society. That's ah, uh, yeah. I I heard that and and a lot worse. You know, Trump is you know the spin and and his defenders. You know, they're saying that you know Trump is pointing out that I guess the justice system has has been harder on the black population and is he's he's. I guess he's saying that it's it's racist, that the system is racist. Um, 
Now that's interesting. The spin of this is interesting because um, I think if you talk to a lot of conservative voters, lawmakers, officials, they would criticize um, they would criticize that notion. They would disagree right. with that notion. So Trump is yet again, in a way, breaking with traditional conservatism um, by by making that claim because that's what he's that's what he. If you listen to the full clip, he goes on to say. You've been discriminated against, yep. and you recognize that I'm being discriminated against. So that's the argument that he's making. Now he it's delivered in a package that sounds pretty racist. Um, <laughs> okay, and and some of his other comments uh, were were definitely um, definitely way out of bounds. And and you do wonder, you do wonder, because you know he, he you know he doesn't get to. F- he doesn't get much over 50% in these primaries. Um, and, and you do wonder about independent voters. The problem that, that when you look at this politically though, you have, you have folks that would be outraged and that are outraged by what Trump, by what Trump said. And for good reason, but they're frustrated with Joe Biden. Yeah. So what do those people do when you've got someone that they may feel is racist and, but then you've got an incumbent president that you feel hasn't done anything to make your life better. What, what do those voters do? That's the question. And and what they do, it will determine who's sworn in next January. Yeah. Or, or yeah, we hope <laughs> that, the, the, that the process it, it goes right. But here's the other thing. When, when you bring up a point about him pointing out, you know, breaking from normal uh, conservatives, here's the thing that I've heard from some of the people I've talked to. And that is, we would take this more seriously if a black person came up and was offended and a lot of, uh, and would say, you know, call this out. But the accusation is that by white people calling out Donald Trump for this, some black people will say, not that big a deal. You know, I can take a joke. But at the same time that, Donald Trump, by saying this, is helping to build and and create, and by saying, and by white liberals calling out Donald Trump, it helps create the backlash that is the far right, because they say, hey, look, it's a joke. You don't get it. It's a joke. And this is why I can't uh, get on board with wokeism, because you, you don't have a sense of humor. Does any of that resonate, Michael? I'm sorry, Brian, remind me, what's the joke part of what he said? I mean, this is, this is, this is, this is nothing. This, I mean, he's not Dave Chappelle. He's not Chris Rock. He, he, he's a running for president of the United States. And he's talking about street creds um, because he has a mugshot, inner city people's love of, of sneakers and seeing people, uh, of color better in in the dark what is the funny part about that and this notion that every time he says something that's overtly racist um someone says oh you don't understand his sense of humor it's not a sense of humor it's a it's a it's a sense of his reality and you know i just don't get this notion that you get to forgive him look if you were if you were a stand-up comedian and you said these things You'd get your your HBO special canceled uh, in 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 
almost any world that we live in. But he gets to say, oh, I was just kidding. I just, you know. Well, and that's kind uh, of the point to them. They, they, they're saying, hey, look, uh, see, you, you'd get canceled for saying this. He shouldn't be canceled. Well, but but he should be canceled. I mean, or at least I don't believe in cancel culture stuff, but I, but he should be called out for it. It shouldn't be forgiven as, oh, you just don't get it. It's 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 a it's a joke. Why? You know, what's up with these people? You know, don't don't they get it when I when I when I say these things yeah. that I'm I'm just kidding? You know, please. Really? Yeah. We're 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 in 2024. You know, it, that's not accept that's not an acceptable excuse so i don't i just don't get the humor i don't get the humor in it i don't get the willingness of people to just forgive it as if it were um intended to be funny when it when it wasn't said in in an intentionally funny way i i find he's running for the president of the united states all right you can make a joke there are presidents who have had you know a sense of humor and and I'm willing to give anybody their sense of humor if they want. It's not something that the president of the United States would use to. It, it doesn't seem inclusive. It seems exclusive and it seems elitist to me. But I understand that some people would laugh. But I think those people that laugh at it, I have to wonder what it is they're laughing at and what they're laughing about, because that's what I find uh, to me is is questionable. John. I think we know what why they're laughing. I think we know their motivation. Yes, thank you. That's... I don't. I don't think it's a secret. I don't. You know, he's he says the quiet part out loud, and he did it again. And you know, and and one thing to Michael's point, he's absolutely right about the accountability part. Um, but one of Trump's attributes, I don't necessarily. It does work for him. Is by tomorrow or Tuesday, he will say something else outrageous and we'll all move on to that. So, you know, he just has this habit, I guess, of of topping himself. And and I was I mean, I or was lowering just, himself. <laughs> he's, he shocked me. And he you know, I say he can still surprise me, but he doesn't shock me. When I saw this yesterday morning we're taping on on Sunday. So I saw this Saturday morning. And I was just scrolling social media and and the clip popped up. And then I found another clip when he was talking about it was the lights were too bright and he could only see black people. That 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 startled me. It still startles me to hear. And like you said, he wants to be the president. And I was astonished. And then I learned he said this um, at an event that was at least sponsored by put on by a group of black conservatives. Right. It was just. I, I, I'm still I'm shocked by it that that and the cameras were on. He knew the cameras were back there, and it 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 really does reveal something when somebody says that because they're telling you something about themselves. And 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 that's the point. And to me, so those who, people who say, "Look, um, if a black person came out or was offended, I I I would get it," but since it's white people, I don't get it. I think the bottom line is you don't get it. the 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 bottom line is it's not whether you're black or white. It's that in Donald Trump's view, your color does matter, and he does look down at certain people, women, people of color, immigrants, LBGTQ, all of that is all part of, of who he is. So his jokes are always made at the expense of someone else. You don't ever see any self-deprecating humor out of Donald Trump. 
it's always about putting someone else down and yeah. that to me is is that is the crudest form of humor and often the most um devastating and divisive form of humor it points someone out and makes fun of them while they elevate themselves above who who they're making fun of my thought michael i'll let you finish on that one before we move on well i think you've said it all brian i i just there's nothing funny about it it's classically racist and people who are willing to forgive him for it should be ashamed of themselves uh, then, and that's a perfect way to end it. And we'll move on to something that takes a lot more, is a little more serious. And that's, uh, take a look at that when we get right back. Hey, you. Yeah, you. We're talking to you and we need your help. As you probably know, independent journalism is a vital pillar of our democracy. Like everything else, it's not free. We're asking all longtime listeners of the show to help support us by becoming a member on Patreon. For the price of a latte, you can help guard democracy. Join us today at patreon.com slash J-A-T-Q podcast to help us keep bringing you the podcast you love and the facts you deserve. Hi, we are back. It is Just Ask the Question. I am your host, Brian Kerman, with me discussing the news of the week and Just Ask the Press. As always, former federal prosecutor Michael Zeldin and editor-at-large from CQ Roll Call, John T. Bennett. When we left, we were talking about uh, Trump's uh, ill-advised sense of humor, but let's talk a little bit more about some of the serious things that are going on in the world. I want to start with the Ukraine funding. That is huge right now as far in uh, whether or not when the House comes back, if they take up the idea of Ukraine funding. But I want to clarify a few things. And there was there have been uh, um, John Kirby has had several briefings recently, and these are virtual briefings. Curiously, since he uh, since uh, there were articles about him and uh, Karine uh, Jean-Pierre not, uh, you know, sharing the podium during White House briefings, he's been kind of absent from them a little bit lately, but he still has his own uh, uh, briefings online. And one of the ones he talked recently about was funding Ukraine. And he made the comment that, um, well, we can't find money in sofa cushions. We have to have a congressional bill that will push out uh, money so that we can give money to Ukraine. And And then I asked him to clear that up. And um, I've asked and I and I want to try and clear it up here when the United States is giving aid to a foreign nation, particularly Ukraine, when they're at war, we're not handing them over cash so they can buy stuff. We're giving them bullets. That's we're handing out uh, weapon systems and artillery and stuff from our stockpiles. So I I found it a bit disingenuous to talk about money and have asked repeatedly to to explain to the American people that what we're talking about is replenishing our own stockpile. And the question is, are, the Army continues to hand stuff out to Ukraine, or wants to, but the question is, are we so low on our own stockpiles that we must replenish at, before we give more to Ukraine? 
And that begs the question is, what are we giving Ukraine? And we're not going to give them what we just made ourselves. For us, we're giving them the stuff we've had for a while, except for the bullets, (laughs) which don't age. I mean, they're still bullets. But looking at what we're looking at now, the Ukraine funding, is do you think that the American people understand what it is we're doing in Ukraine and would support it if it were better explained? Or is this a case of, and is this a case of uh, the U.S. government not telling the truth to the American people about what we need in Ukraine? John, I'll let you kick that one off. You know, we're giving them things, uh, you mentioned bullets, uh, body armor, I mean, all kinds of things, anti-tank missiles are very important. Uh, Russia has a, 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 a still a, a very robust tank fleet, armored, you know, uh, personnel carrier fleet. Um, so those are the kinds of things. And, you know, those might be if you're a superpower um, like the United States and you've got China out there and, of course, Russia, um, you might want to have some of those of your own in a warehouse somewhere in case bad things happen. So that 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 is an issue um now remember i have a different perspective on this i covered defense budgeting and weapons acquisition for over a decade the annual defense budget is approaching 900 billion dollars and when the pentagon cries poverty uh a recovering defense reporter like me doesn't really buy it because you're getting almost a trillion Damn dollars a year, guys. What are you doing with it? Well, I can tell you what they're doing with it, Brian. They're they're, they're spending a lot of it on personnel. People are expensive. Got it. But they don't manage the money they get to develop and build and buy the weapons well at all. I mean, I would interview program managers and a guy would tell me like, um, well, you know, I, I, I grew up in the armored vehicle world, showed some talent at this. And now they put me on a satellite program to run it. And then it did. Well, of course, the program then had trouble because the guy in charge, he's not a space guy. He's a vehicle guy. But he just needed he was at a point in his career where he needed to be promoted into a program manager job. They had an opening. You're a satellite guy. So they don't really manage our money well. Um, But oh, shit. (laughs) <laughs> but if the warehouse, but if the warehouse is empty, the warehouse is empty. And if you want some anti-tank missiles, well, you got to buy some more. Um, so you're right; that is a big component of this. I, I think Kirby was Kirby was wise to raise it because their arguments with House Republicans and some Senate Republicans haven't been getting through, and they may have to pivot hard, at least in Washington, uh, to that kind of message. Um, yeah. They've already pivoted. The administration has pivoted to um, if we get this money, it it will be good for jobs and it'll mean keep jobs going across America because the defense industry has been smart enough to scatter work on these things all across the country um, in districts and states. So I think that that may be a way to get this through if they can pivot to an argument like that. Your second question on does the American people know why we're in Ukraine? I think. I mean, I don't know how Joe Biden would would explain this uh, any differently than he has. Maybe he could talk about it a little a little more. I mean, it is the two year anniversary, and we didn't we got a, a lengthy statement uh, from Biden and other G seven leaders yesterday on a Saturday 
Um, they had a virtual meeting yesterday via video conference. So we got that. It was very detailed. And, you know, I was impressed with the statement. I thought it, it had a lot of news in there. Um, but at the same time, you know, Russia bad, Putin bad. Um, he says, so maybe, yeah, the, the administration could step up its uh, messaging a bit. <laughs> yeah, of, of what we're doing there. But I don't know if it would make a difference, even if even if if they did more forcefully defend it. I, I just think after Afghanistan, after Iraq, um, you know, I, I think the American the American people, the American voter is kind of war wary after the last few decades. So I, I just don't think it would I don't I don't think the polls are going to change. And, you know, being involved in Ukraine to start polling at like, you know, 92 percent or anything. Michael? Well, I think it is an important issue, um, the funding of Ukraine. And I am horrified at America's, you know, collective ignorance about why it is important when you look back in the World War One, World War Two era and you see uh, parallels. It, you know, surprises me. But I guess, you know, American historical ignorance is not shouldn't be surprising um but it is what it is and i think it is incumbent upon uh, the president of the united states to clear more clearly lay out what the imperative is in in his view and why it is in the national interest especially so when you um, look at it in juxtaposition to the the death of um, Russian dissidents, the murders of Russian dissidents in Spain and in prisons, and yeah. and um, and the the guy in Spain, and you and you think this is this is the guy who's you know going after Ukraine, and you know what what's next, and it just it just behooves the president, I think, to come on and make the case more strongly for it. I think the money should be available. Uh, you know, look, I always thought if they got rid of half of the bands in the armed forces, the musical troops, they, 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 could, they could fund a lot of things. I've never more bands in the in the military than just I as long as it's not the Marine Corps band. They're pretty damn good. <laughs> they're all good. But my God, you know, I, you know, bring back the bagpipes and, you know, we could start marching down across the field. It you know it's a it's an anachronism, but um, I don't know. You know, good for them. I I watch them at the memorials, and they're all, <laughs> they're all talented musicians. And goodness knows what those guys would have to do if they couldn't play the bugle. But there, there you go. <laughs> well, let me let me just uh, I want to switch one other thing before we go today. But I will say that. so on background. We don't have any additional replenishment authority, so that means if we were to send any additional weapons equipment to Ukraine, we would not be able to replace them, which could impact our own military readiness. Hence, we need Congress to act quickly to pass the supplemental funding. If we are that, my question, the follow-up to that is, are we that, it, with all the trillions that we spend on defense, we could not fund by proxy this type of war for two years without uh, or or give you know we're not even giving all the funding but some of the funding it 
what are we spending the money on? That begs the question that, John, you brought up earlier, and that's that's frightening. And how do we spend our defense budget? That, to me, if all the trillions that we pour into the budget, we can't afford some bullets, I don't know what the hell we're spending our money on. So, Just, yeah, just consider this, Brian. According to Breaking Defense, which is uh, now run by a former colleague and friend of mine, Aaron Mehta, one F-35 fighter, the flyaway cost, so the cost is $82.5 million. That's one fighter jet. These things have yeah. gotten way too expensive, and they, they, you know, they jack up the requirements. Um, and they and, jack you know, up they, the price. That, well, I that, mean, that's how they jack up the yeah. price. Is it's going to do this, and it's going to do that, and we're going to put this system on it, but it doesn't talk to the radar. And then we're going to put this sensor on it, but it doesn't talk to the other sensor, and now neither of them are talking to the radar, so that jacks up the price, you know, another $10 million while they try to fix it. But other people are telling them, including, you know, congressional committees, like, that's never going to work, guys. Oh, just give us more money, we'll make it work. So that's, that's what they're the spending point. on, that yeah. kind of thing. That's, that's what, at the end of the day, what this tells me, when they need more money to buy bullets to send to Ukraine, we are squandering money and i know that they'll end up getting money to ukraine because the defense contractors who was it that warned against the uh, uh the rise of the, yeah the defense industry so i yeah. i'm just saying to Eisenhower, me, on his way out of office left yeah. a warning that uh this many people listen to yeah zero yeah yeah so moving on to the last part before we take a break i was covering a uh presidential uh, appearance in Culver City and ran into some protesters who were screaming genocide Joe must go and I asked why is why do you call him genocide Joe I thought that was a simple question to which I got the response that I was a Zionist and that I am obviously hate all um, Palestinians so breaking this issue down if we can, logically, without the passion, <laughs> which is hard to do, Joe Biden and, and the United States of America uh, blocked a ceasefire proposal before NATO. That's one of the reasons why some of them say he's genocide Joe. But at the end of the day, we have heard that the administration has pushed back against Netanyahu for some of the more outrageous things that have happened. People on both sides say, look, innocent people are dying on both sides. We just want peace. So let's take a look at both sides of that. And let's start, uh, John, with you. Is is this, uh, I mean, how does the how does the administration, or are they righteous in saying he's genocide, Joe? Or is there a pushback? From the administration? From, uh, from, from logic, from reality. I mean... <laughs> This well, administration it, could always push back. We could have a whole discussion about how ineffective their communication is. But let's right. talk about we reality. We have had that conversation. Many yeah. times. Um, I think the problem, a problem, maybe not the problem, with the administration on this is, and, and we've seen this in the last week to 10 days, uh, the Thursday night, the infamous Thursday night um, messaging disaster from, from President Biden. At the White House, um, he's asked by our friend Francesca Chambers of USA Today for an update uh, on the war. 
he comes back to the to the lectern and says eventually that um, the response in Gaza has gone too far, and then uh, and then it, it and and it feels like a shift, right? It feels like he's moving away from Netanyahu publicly, and then his administration, Biden's administration, vetoes the UN ceasefire resolution the next day. And and there's been some other examples of, you know, Kirby on Friday. I was on I was on Kirby's gaggle call on Friday and and he's saying Yeah, I was that, there, yeah. and he's saying that the president disappointed in Netanyahu's um proposal to build, you know, three thousand new housing units in the West Bank, more settlements. So they go back and forth daily on their pushback on Netanyahu, their criticism of Netanyahu. And I mean, I find it, I, it, I, I find it confusing how one day you can say he's gone too far. And two days later, you're, you're, you're making it, you're, you're, you're helping to keep the environment for him to go too far in All existence. On. Yeah. So I, I see it's not that the policy is inconsistent, but I don't know. I don't know what the policy is. You know what I mean? Exactly. I, and I think that confusion is what spurs some of the the uh, the protests because when you speak yeah. to those people who protest, they have not a clue what 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 the policy is. But then again, as you pointed out, I don't know if we do either, Michael. And and, and oh, by, sorry. Oh, by the way, when the administration has reached out to these groups that are organizing the protests, and you know, in Michigan, they're trying to get ten thousand people to vote uncommitted in the Democratic primary to send a message to President Biden that it that the general election here is going to be razor thin close again. And we have the numbers um, to 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 keep these electoral votes from Michigan and, and essentially give them to Donald Trump, but take it away from Biden. But when the administration reaches out to these groups and tries to meet with them, according to reports, it don't go well. So they've got a this is another group that's very uh, upset and the politically inconvenient part for Joe Biden is like the Arab American Arab American community, um, big population in Michigan, big population in in some other swing states. So they do have a they have an electoral math problem as we sit here on February twenty fifth. Michael, well, what's happening in Gaza is tragic. There's no question whether it meets the the definition, I mean, genocide is a term of, uh, legal term, killing members of a group, causing seriously bodily injury, targeting a group. You know, I'm not sure that it meets the definition of, of genocide, the legal definition of genocide. But besides the point, whether it's genocide or just bad, um, what's going on in Gaza is, is bad. Um, what happened in Israel when they were attacked by Hamas w w was bad. And so there's bad on, on both sides. And, you know, the problem here, like, for example, I, have you seen any indication that the, the, that Hamas or the Palestinian Authority are seeking to bring to criminal justice the people who perpetrated the hate crimes that were um, perpetrated uh, in the attack by Hamas in Israel. I mean, there were uh, horrible, horrible crimes committed, um, rapes and, and murders of children and, and the like. Is anyone being brought 
to criminal justice um, in the, by the Palestinian Authority or Hamas for any of those crimes. I haven't heard anyone talk uh, in those terms. If the, if if in Israel, well, can I interject here? Were true. Let me let me just yeah. interject here. One of the things that I find most loathsome about this situation is the simple fact that more than a hundred journalists covering it have been murdered. Is there anything going on in inside Gaza? I don't know either. As you said, you haven't heard, but I don't know, and I'll be honest, I don't know at this point if it's because it's not happening or because reporters who could report it are being slaughtered. And I yeah. know that sounds uh, over the top to some, but I think the fog of war in this situation is incredibly real. And I don't, I don't know what's going on there. And I, that's, to me, the most frightening aspect of it. What you point out, Michael, is what have we heard and what haven't we heard? To me, I, I don't know. And therefore, I can't make a judgment because I've, we've lost colleagues there, hundreds, hundreds of them. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah. No, but I mean, I guess the point is, yes, we don't really know what's going on. And we hear figures like 11,000 Palestinians have died in the attack. And, you know, we get that from the U.N. or um, Doctors Without Borders. And then there are allegations that members of the U.N. team were part of the Gaza um, attack force um, in, in October. And Doctors Without Borders is, you know, sort of anything but a neutral Participants. So it's really hard to know what's going on other than what's going on is really bad. And yeah. on both sides, a lot of innocent people, uh, women and children in particular, were, were slaughtered, um, just flat out slaughtered. The people who came across the border into Israel committed atrocious crimes, terrorist crimes, hate crimes, which if they did it, in any other civilized country, they'd be on trial now for their lives. I haven't heard anybody being put on trial for anything um, for 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 this. And so I take with grains of salt anyone who, you know, just sees a one-sided, um, agreed, a, you know, level of atrocity um, uh, uh, by this. But that all said, um, something has to give. Some coalition of forces has to bring about a negotiated settlement here. And uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu does not seem to be part of the solution, yes. nor does um, Abbas or the heads of uh, Hamas. None of them seem to have anything in mind that even approaches uh, a solution that will lead to um, a two-state solution. And so I am very cautious before I'm going to start calling um, genocide Joe um, yeah. uh, names, because, as I say, I think the absence of accountability by the Palestinian Authority of Hamas for the crimes committed in its name um, need to be prosecuted, too. Agreed. Well, uh, with that, I want to close on a letter from, uh, <laughs> I love this guy's moniker, Seattle 07. So uh, Seattle 07 asked uh, if we had heard that Donald Trump had threatened to jail reporters, that uh, Joe Biden had announced that in meeting with Katie Couric earlier this week. And yes, I have. 
And yes, I wrote a column about it. You can, uh, I'll plug it. It's on salon.com. And I will say this about that. Um, and, and John, you were there covering the first White House. It does not surprise me that Donald Trump would threaten to jail reporters if he goes back into office. I would advise everyone to remember what happened to Navalny in Russia, and that gives you a good idea of what Donald Trump is all about. And a few of us, uh, myself, uh, Jim Acosta at CNN, uh, both had to fight in court to keep our press passes after Donald Trump tried to kick us out. Donald Trump is, uh, if nothing, a reactionary, and if everything, uh, anti-democratic. It does not surprise me. It does not shock me. In fact, I had heard privately from those closest to Donald Trump before the president made it public that there are several reporters that would be jailed almost immediately if Donald Trump could when he came back into office. And and I'll place my faith in that regard to the greatest First Amendment attorney around, Ted Boutros, and uh, and who kept me out of trouble last time. I I while it is disturbing to hear it from Donald Trump. It is not surprising. So with that, we'll, we'll uh, end this week. Uh, Michael, plug what you want. By the way, I loved your last podcast. Thank you so much for the book. That was uh, the 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 link. It was really a good podcast, and I wanted to bring. Well, that thanks. Up. But may I ask you this: when when Trump is talking about jailing um, reporters, is he referring specifically to this podcast? <laughs> <laughs> I'll just, get you a good attorney. Because, <laughs> you know, technically I'm not a reporter, so I just want to make sure that I'm not in the same cell with you two. <laughs> <laughs> that would be quite the punishment. Exactly. Be better than being in a cell with a guy named Ben Dover. But anyway, right. well, what what was what was it? Take the money and run the old Woody Allen. Yeah, uh, <laughs> where where he's put in the hole with an insurance salesman. That was his punishment. Yeah. <laughs> uh, anyway, go ahead. Plug plug away. So it's called that said with Michael Zeldin. And it's a, a month. It's a, day, a weekly podcast where I interview authors about uh, books. The last book was on the. Fight against the Ku Klux Klan by President um, Ulysses S. Grant. Before that, we we had a baseball, we had a, a sports reporter, we've had two sports reporters, and upcoming is another book about um, the fight to save Jews out of Russia in, in World War One and World War Two. Um, so it's a diverse educational opportunity for everyone. There you go. And John? Uh, first, I would like to bring this full circle. I just got a fundraising text from the Haley campaign. And um, Nikki, I guess we're on a first name basis, says uh, she is not giving up this fight. So she is staying in the primary. Uh, and speaking of primaries, and it's going to be a big primary season uh, the next few weeks. And you can follow all of that at rollcall.com. There you go. And the name of this podcast is Just Ask the Press, a part of the Just Ask the Question consortium of podcasts. And you catch that two or three times a week, wherever fine podcasts are sold. You can catch me on salon.com for uh, the latest uh, column and anywhere where, you know, ever I appear on TV. Peace out. We love you. Thanks for joining us. We will catch you next time.